Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'd like to think that Jeff Torborg plus Eddie Murray plus uh, Bobby Bonilla is a heck of a Christmas present to Mets fans. And uh, we're hoping a lot of them pack our ballpark next year. I'm going to have that smile on my face. And like I said again, it's going to be hard to knock it off. I know you're going to try, but I don't know if it's going to happen. They sent me to a great organization and a team that's got a great chance of getting the postseason. Everyone doesn't have to be good every night, but one of us will probably be pretty good that night. So We're looking forward to a lot of special things happening. And it will be out of here. He waves and misses in another off-speed pitch. The Boo Birds are in full voice at Shane Stadium. Bobby Boo's here in New York so far. That's an exchange you don't like to see with anybody, nope. but it is certainly... Indicative of the kind of year it's been for this ball club. Well, 1992, if you're old enough to remember, was not a great one for the New York Mets. In fact, the year after, there was a book written by longtime baseball writer Bob Clappish called The Worst Team Money Could Buy. You can dig deep enough that you like to hide in. No, that's and a fly ball hit to right field. Barfield can't see it. Oh, he dropped it too. Holy cow, what's coming off here? Now that's gotta be an error. And a little pop-up, Espinosa. Makes the catch. Hey, I don't believe it. It's a no-hitter, but four big runs scored. Double play ball. And that'll do it. Ball game is over on the 6-4-3 double play. Nothing across. And everybody coming over to congratulate Hawkins, even though he was a loser. Final score. The White Sox four, the Yankees nothing. We're back and joining me, friend of the show, Chris Donnelly. I've been talking to Chris, oh, wow, well over 10 years. Came out with a great book during the old uh, New York baseball radio show days, a book about the uh, Yankees-Mariners series in the uh, 1995 postseason, baseball's greatest series. He also wrote a book that we've talked about on this show about the 85 New York baseball season with the Mets and the Yankees, both not making the playoffs but having great seasons. And now he's taken on a project that I got to be honest is a little bit different and unique talking about we, if I always talk about the golden era of uh, New York baseball being 1997, 2001 before that was maybe the worst era of New York baseball <laughs> road to nowhere about the early 1990s Mets and Yankees um, with a lot of chaos and obviously the Mets collapse and the Yankees before their ascension. So Chris, welcome to the program. You were in Cooperstown last week for the festivities. How was it? 
I was. Well, first of all, Mike, uh, thanks for having me. I always appreciate you having me on to uh, talk about my stuff every time I'm pushing out a book. So thank you. Uh, but Cooper, Cooperstown was great. It, it's always great. And um, I mean, the place itself is just a really great place to visit and be at. And then when you just add in all the baseball folks that are there, uh, just all the people in general, it's I look forward to it every year. I was look, thinking about New York baseball and I was going back in history and I'm like, OK, you have. Some people are the golden era of New York baseballs, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, right? You got the 1950s, Yankee dynasties. Yankees take a step back in the 60s, and then the Mets win the 69 World Series after the Dodgers and Giants left. And the Mets were pretty competitive after that. And for a while, up until George Steinbrenner took over the team, they actually outdrew the, the Yankees. Then you had the late 70s Yankees dynasty. And when the Yankees are on the way down, the Mets come up. So you always had one team pretty much up until 1991 that was in contention and good. Then all of a sudden, 1991 happens. Davey Johnson's fired the year before. Daryl Strawberry leaves. The Yankees are a mess with Stump Merrill and and uh, Howie Spira and Dave Winfield. And I guess you must have been going through history and saying, wow, nobody's ever really written about the period from basically 91 to right around when your book from 1995 with the Yankees Mariners series came out, how chaotic it was over there for New York baseball. Yeah, it's a good point. And it's it's something that uh, when I was doing the last book, uh, the one about the 85 season, Doc Dye and the Kid and Billy Brawl, um, one thing that struck me was how few books there are written about the New York Mets. Uh, there are a ton about the Yankees, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens, and there really aren't that many about the Mets. And there are especially very few about the post-86 years. Um, and almost none about the 90s other than The Worst Team Money Could Buy, which is a great book. And I, I use that as research for this one. And there's a couple of others. And it just sort of struck me as odd um, because it's a really interesting time, not necessarily one that a lot of people would like to remember. But I'm sort of fascinated with this idea that by the early 90s, both teams have just sort of fallen off the map. And I, I wanted to talk about why that happened. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't, uh, there were some elements of bad luck, but there were reasons why all of this happened. And I wanted to explore that um, and and just talk about a time where both teams were pretty terrible and then how they slowly, I mean, it took the Mets a lot longer. We know that. And then how they slowly try to move on from that. Chris Donnelly, author of the book Road to Nowhere, which discusses the early 1990s baseball scene in New York. I remember, you know, here I am uh, entering high school in 1991, you know, started watching baseball in the mid-80s. Mets fan, I believe you're the Yankee, you're a Yankees fan. Uh, and you think as a young kid, it's never going to end. Doc, Daryl, great times. And then 1991 happens. But believe it or not, a lot of people forget that 1992 or the winter of 91 into 92, the Mets were the big spenders. The Mets were what the Yankees have become and the Mets have now become now and Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray and, and, you know, making the trade for Brett Saberhagen looking back, you know, that 1992 team may be a bit overrated when you start to dissect how the roster was built, but the Mets tried to buy themselves back into the postseason, give themselves a second life and it didn't work. And then that's when things got bad. So it was interesting as you're going through that to go back in a time where, you know, the Yankees were clearly behind the Mets and from a spending perspective, George Steinbrenner, who basically was the first one to jump into free agency, wasn't at the table. It was. It must have been a little bit different having grown up, having been around the Yankees and what happened in the 90s and turn of the century in the last 20-some-odd years since to see that kind of scenario. 
Yeah, one thing that really struck me when I was doing the research for the book is the Mets in before the 91 season had signed Vince Coleman as a free agent. And I didn't realize that that was almost literally something they never did. Um, I, I, I forget the exact number, but I think Coleman was something like the third or fourth free agent that they had signed um, since free they agency. They never got into free agency. Which, like they, they stayed away from it. Yeah, it's, it's shocking and it almost sounds impossible, but it's true. I, I mean, the, every other player they obtained was either a draft coming up through the system or somebody that they acquired from a trade and then re-signed uh, or did a contract extension as part of the deal. That was really shocking to me. And and that was really sort of Frank Cashin's way of, of doing things. And then when Cashin leaves and Joe McElvain and Al Harrison take over, um, they're doing things differently. And so in 91 or 92, they're signing big-time free agents, and they sign Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray, and then they make this trade for Brett Saberhagen, which was – I mean, all of these moves, as you point out, people thought the Mets were going to streamroll over everybody in 92. And in some ways it made sense. In other ways, I think, as, as you allude to, it was maybe a little bit too much wishful thinking. Um, but I also don't think anybody could have predicted just how badly all of that. Um, I mean, I've said this before. It's amazing how almost every decision the Mets made in the early 90s failed and some of that you can place blame on leadership and some of it is just plain dumb luck but basically every single move they made from roughly 1989 through 1993 and 94 uh failed they they got the bad end of the trades they got the bad end of the free agent signings and it's it's um astonishing that that happened i mean that's and that's why you get a team in 93 that finishes with 59 wins and that team although they don't have the fewest wins in a single season in Mets history. It's probably their worst season ever, both because of the record, because of who they had on their team and what they could have accomplished. And because of all the turmoil that was going on in the clubhouse. It made for great talk radio. Think about the extension of WFAN. And when you look at the Mets and the Yankees, the Mets in the winter of 92, the Yankees in the winter of 92 into 93, 91 into 92, 92 to 93. That's the explosion of free agency. I don't think fans in the modern era, like, we're in this era now, free agency is a big thing, trade deadline, 24-7, 365, but that was all new. You know, growing up as a young fan in the 80s of all sports, I mean, the NFL hadn't even hit that yet. That was still to come, and, and the NBA was still way, way to come. But free agency was not something that was common. Sure, the Yankees would sign Jack Clark, and there would be some movement of free agents, but it was a very small group of teams that would partake in it. We know why collusion one collusion two, collusion three. And then the following off season, I remember for the first time in December and in, in, in November, while you're in the middle of the NFL season, middle of the NBA season, Barry Bonds is a free agent. Greg Maddox is a free agent. And the Yankees don't even get those guys. They wound up getting Jimmy key and Wade Boggs, who everybody thought was washed up, but those became big free agent moves for the Yankees. And signal the difference and the failure of the Mets with Bonilla, who wasn't all that bad off. When you look at Bonilla's numbers, he wasn't a horrible Met. He just didn't fit personality, all that other side. Uh, Everything the Mets, it was almost like they diverged and free agency played a big part of it. Yankees struck gold with their second and third tier choices. But it was weird. I never, it was the first time I was like, wow, this like this free agency thing was wild. Yeah, 92 into 93 is really a transitional time, largely for the Yankees. And to the point you make, it, it's an interesting time in baseball because you have the expansion draft that November 
with the Marlins and the Rockies entering baseball. No team at the time was seemingly hurt more by that draft than the New York Yankees. They lost Charlie Hayes. They lost Carl Everett. They lost a couple of other guys. Um, and losing Charlie Hayes, they were not expecting that to happen. And uh, inexplicably, they had no backup plan for that. Um, they just assumed he was going to be their third baseman. And the Yankees were somewhat, uh, it seems unbelievable to say this looking back, they were somewhat forced into signing Wade Boggs. Half of the team didn't wasn't really looking to do that. Gene Michael did not want Wade Boggs on the Yankees. It was the Tampa contingent of George's operation that wanted him. Boggs was a Tampa guy, and and he was coming off his worst season ever. Um, and then that's the draft where, as I point out in the book, Mariano Rivera was available. They didn't know he wasn't taken. Look at that, um, yeah. Yeah, which and, and the Yankee and I just made the point about the Mets being so unlucky. The Yankees were so lucky, and that's not to take credit away from. Gene Michael and Buck Showalter and the scouting department and all the decisions and moves they made. But along the way, luck basically went their way in every opportunity. And Rivera is a great example. But then in, in terms of free agency, I think people might forget that um, the Yankees made a substantial offer to Barry Bonds and he wanted nothing to do with New York. Um, they made a substantial offer to Greg Maddox and he instead went to the Braves. So they struck out left and right that offseason. And Jimmy Key was a consolation prize for them losing Greg Maddox. And he was, uh, I think, in an analytical age, his value probably would have been more appreciated with some of the data that we have now. However you feel about analytics, I think he would have been looked at differently. Sure. And he was just thought of as a guy they could put in the rotation, and he goes and he wins 18 games. I think he was fourth in Cy Young. He finishes second in 94. Um, it's And miss it's it seems unbelievable to say this but missing out on Bonds and Maddox um worked out in the Yankees favor they actually ended up okay at the end of that what was interesting about that time I'm thinking back was there was no worse time for baseball in this town I always think of this town as a baseball town first maybe NFL now but I think baseball pretty much will take over even during NFL season if the Mets and Yankees are in the postseason maybe I'm dating myself maybe it's my generation and because these two teams were not good because of the bad press with Steinbrenner because of how bad things got with the Mets it almost you know the town you know the couple both football teams were, were bad it became a Knicks town think about it. the Knicks kind of were the, the 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 and then the Rangers hockey and basketball became the the it sports they were growing sports the NBA was a growing sport uh, the Rangers with the 1940. And I'll tell you from 91, 92, that fall till, you know, when Pat Riley left and then, you know, the Rangers couldn't repeat as, as Stanley cup champions. And then really going into the fall of 95 with your book about the Yankees and the Mariners, this was an NBA hockey town for about four years. And then the Yankees swung baseball back. I don't think that's ever happened before. And it may be, you know, look, the Mets and Yankees are in transitions now. We'll see. But that's an interesting part that I thought of as I was, you know, basically reading your book. No, and I think it's spot on, right? You had, as you said, the Knicks and the Rangers, and then uh, the Rangers had a great rivalry that was developing with the Devils, um, which became interesting, especially in 94. Um, and the Knicks were, not only were, were they good, they were fun to watch. Um, and, and the Mets and the Yankees just were not fun or entertaining. I mean, they were the opposite. The Mets had become really what the Yankees had been in the 80s and 90s. And the Yankees... Um, 
they didn't have George in those early years, but they were still, they weren't good. There was still turmoil in the clubhouse. Uh, and then Buck comes in and sort of clears all that out. And really it's the, the post strike Yankees who, and I know, I know folks are going to roll their eyes when they hear this, but it is true. It is the post strike Yankees that really brought people back to baseball in New York and to I a agree. degree. In and to a degree in all of Major League Baseball, it was a combination of factors. It was the home runs. It was a it was an amazing group of young, talented players, the Nomars, A Rod, Jeter, that those kind of guys. But it was the Yankees being successful. And, and again, I know people don't necessarily like to hear this, but baseball tends to be in a better place when the Yankees are doing well, um, just because people love to hate the Yankees and they they love to go watch them play. Um, and really it's the, it's the 95 division series that has that huge impact. The Yankees hadn't been in the playoffs in 14 years. Um, and you had Don Mattingly, this, this maybe the most beloved New York sports icon ever finally getting to the postseason. And despite the way it, it ended, even after the strike, you have 57,000 people at Yankee stadium. And that, that is, I don't want to keep using this word, but that's a transitional moment for the sport and for New York sports, um, because then people are sort of back on board. And I think they kind of rediscovered what they loved about baseball. A hundred percent. I mean, I got to tell you, I'll even go back uh, a little couple of years earlier. I mean, I remember, you know, again, we're 16, 17, 18. We weren't talking baseball in high school. We and it was, I went to, you know, school in Brooklyn, plenty of Yankee fans, plenty of Mets fans, maybe at that time more Mets fans than Yankee fans. But after 88 and even when 89 and 90 Mets being contention late in the season, they had floundered out in September. You didn't have that juice. You didn't have that excitement. And there was the burden of expectations. The Yankees were just bad. Uh, even when they were in it, they were bad. They, you know, 88, even when they were somewhat in it. And as you look at that 93 team, the first season where Buck Showalter had that team, you know, after he had tried to clean things up the year before, that was a fun season, I remember, for Yankees fans. I remember knowing a lot of Yankees fans. And, you know, I was like, there's no way they're going to compete with the Blue Jays over time. There was no wild card yet. And they couldn't. The Blue Jays were in the midst of winning their second title. But you had Mike Stanley and you had Boggs with the Renaissance year. Don Mattingly was, you know, not pre-back Don Mattingly. He was starting to percolate a little bit, you know, becoming, you know, the version he was. Danny Tartable, who turned out to be the consolation prize for the Yankees when Benita signed with the Mets. And, you know, Jimmy Key and Jim Abbott with the, the, the you know, the no-hitter. Um, it was a fun team. It was a fun summer. And then you're right, as you see that energy in 95, I remember watching game one, I believe, when Don Manley hit the home run against the Mariners. I was like, wow, we've missed this. We've missed this a lot. And I look, I'm rooting against the Yankees and the kid. I, I'm not lying to you here. I loved when, you know, Ken Griffey came around. Um, but there was a certain energy where, this matters. And I'll tell you, it really, for both teams, in my opinion, came back two years later when they played each other in the first Subway Series. And I feel like that's when the golden age of New York baseball started. Because now the Mets were showing, hey, we're back, we're for real. And we had that four-year run that really culminated in the Subway Series. So I think that 93 Yankees team, in a lot of ways, was the first step towards baseball becoming more relevant again in New York after it had been dead, really, for a couple of years. Yeah, a couple of things on that, Mike, which is uh, and, and the, the golden era that you talk about will be covered. Uh, there's a book that will be out that basically picks up where this one 
leaves off. I'm working on. You're them. already way ahead of me. Wow, you you. <laughs> well, I'm giving away all your secrets here, man. That's all right. That's all right. Everyone everyone knows the ending, but it's all hey, right. Hey, listen, you can always call me. I know we called about this. You can always call. I can, I got fond <laughs> memories of those years. I'll tell that, you that that one will be out in a couple of years. But um, the the Mets, I think, were in some ways a victim of their own success uh, or ultimately lack of it because in 86 it was such a, a magical season and people were expecting a dynasty that never happened and so despite the fact that they were I mean, they went to the NLCS in 88 and they were one game from the World Series and despite the fact that they were in it in 89 and 90 I think the fact that they never became what, what people probably unfairly expected of them to become didn't help uh, keep attention and focus on them as the season went along, as you got to September and October. Uh, and and with the Yankees, that 93 team is largely forgotten, uh, except for the diehard fans. And part of that is because you had the 94 team that everybody wonders what would have happened without the strike. Then you have the 95 and then you have the dynasty teams. The 93 team, um, it was as a fan, it was the first time I'd ever watched a successful Yankees team. So that made it fun, but they were also really easy to root for and really fun to watch. And they were, um, they were, G Michael had really reshaped the team in a, in a moneyball kind of way. Again, I'm not going to say the Yankees were the creator of moneyball. They were not, but Gene Michael understood that on base percentage was probably the most important thing that you want to look at for a player. And he also understood, and so did Buck Showalter, the necessity of having people in the clubhouse who are focused on winning. And so they cleared out the guys like Mel Hall, um, who were not really all about that. And in 93, they, I don't think people thought they were going to be that good. I think they thought they were going to be better than 76 and 86 that they were at 92. Um, and then to have them for a span of nine weeks from July to about the middle of September, consistently be within three games of the Blue Jays. And in fact, put a scare in them. Put a scare in them. They did. And and they tied them first place 18 different times without holding first place themselves, which is, I believe, still a major league record. They really made an amazing run. um, And it was it was fun to watch them in a way that had they hadn't been even in the eighties when they were having good years um, because the guys were so likable. And because for the large part, even though George was back, there was very little drama that year. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards. As we know it, if you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And when you talk about Moneyball guys and guys that build the culture or build the foundation to the, the renaissance of New York baseball, which you're right. Mets fans may not want to hear it. It starts with the 95 Yankees. There's always those guys that are part of the transition. They're part of the process and they're important, but they're not there for the party. And for the Yankees, there are guys like Mike Stanley, Deion James, Mike Gallego, Randy Lavardi, who, uh, who they didn't want to lose that. I remember that was a big loss. I believe if not, it was free agency, if I'm not mistaken. So you hear about the Laritzes, and obviously Mattingly is always known as what if, but there was a lot of what you call moneyball guys, guys who, unless you were reading Bill James back in 1993, Deion James stinks. Who the hell is Mike Stanley? Mike Gallego, you know, scrub middle infielder from Oakland. These are good players that, as you look at now, they would be applauded as moves made by Stick Michael if they if this was a Twitter error back in 1993. Yeah. Mike Stanley's a great example of that. And I write in the book, how, when he was signed before the 92 season, it basically merited like one, maybe two lines in the New York times. The Yankees have signed backup catcher, Mike Stanley. He hit something like 248 with a couple of home runs last year. And that's all it was. And uh, he comes to the Yankees and he, he, he hit for average. He walked, he hit with power. I mean, you could probably argue that in 93 and 94 and to some degree, 95, Mike Stanley was the best all around offensive catcher in the American league. Um, and then he, he, it, it does not, is not welcomed back in 96 because the Yankees moved to a more defensive minded uh, position as it, as it comes to catcher, they trade for him uh, in 97 towards a stretch run. He's on the 97 team that doesn't win the championship either. So Mike Stanley is a guy who, was there for the best parts of it, except the, the championships. Um, and then there are other guys, as you point out, Deion James, who, who had these really fantastic seasons in New York. Mike Gallego was there because he knew how to win. He was a solid middle infielder. He got on base and he knew how to win. And it was little acquisitions like that that really changed not just the wins and losses, but the clubhouse culture in the Yankees. What did you... Anything interesting you learn, you know, look, we, we grow up watching these teams, you know, it's not like we're going back in the history books and writing, writing about the, the, the 61 Yankees, you know, you live through it. You might've been young, but you lived through it. I lived through it. Now our, our intelligence about the game, our exposure to information and knowledge was much more limited than today. I'm, I'm actually jealous of how many pieces of information people who were fans today. I mean, I, I, I didn't even have cable. I didn't have cable till September of 1992. I was, six, right. I was 16 going on seven, you know, 17 there. Right. Come on, you know? But that was the world we lived in. It was not a digital age. It was a radio age. It was a newspaper age. Did you learn something about that era with these two teams that maybe surprised you? Because, you know, even though you lived it, you weren't thinking of it back then. Uh, that's, that is a great question. Um, I think one thing. I, so what's fun is now that you have baseballreference.com is to be able to go back and track guys through a season, right? Because as you point out, we used to just have baseball cards and uh, sure. 
my my mother one year for Christmas, I remember bought me well, the baseball encyclopedia, which is like I have the and, and it was outdated. You right. couldn't get every year. So my encyclopedia ended in 1989. So anything from 1980, right. whatever. Yeah. Right. And it, it was so bad. I mean, it took you four hours to thumb through the pages to find, sure. even, well, even if it was in alphabetical order, it still took you that long. So to be able to go back and look through their guys' seasons as they progressed and to see if the final numbers really told the story of how great their seasons were. Uh, and I say that specifically to, uh, as a point of Don Mattingly. So no secret. I'm a, I was a Don Mattingly fan. That's, I mean, that's his Jersey right there. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I hear yeah. you. So, um, and look, post back injury, he was not the same player he was in the eighties. There's no secret about that. And and he caught a lot of flack in his last season for how unproductive he was. And again, by uh, I think analytics would probably not be helpful to his case now, depending on which one you use, because there are some that strongly support us all a fame case and others that don't. But uh, my point is going back and looking, especially at his 93 season and looking about his, at his performance from June, July and August. If it hadn't been for a September where he really slumped badly it's possible that in a season where he missed a month from injury, he would have hit 20 home runs. He would have driven driven in over hundred RBIs and he would have hit over 300. And I mean, those are outstanding numbers. And, and so he was still a productive player. He was Mark Grace at that right. point in his career right. became Mark Grace, which is a right. really solid good player, first to, be. Baseman. Good <laughs> right. player to be right. not Don Manningly. The power was the big difference in Don right. Mattingly. He wasn't game. hitting the eight home, home runs in eight consecutive games. He wasn't hitting 35 home runs. He wasn't batting 353. And that's okay because you don't necessarily expect that out of players. Um, but to see that he was still putting up good productive numbers, and, and I talk about this in the book, that the stretch he had in that season was really his best one um, of the 90s. And going back and doing that for a lot of guys, I, I think of somebody like Anthony Young who had – the losing streak uh, for those who don't know, Anthony Young set the record between 92 and 93 for the most consecutive loss. 27 in a row. He wins a start. A I think his first start in 1992, he wins in St. Louis and then he doesn't win for a year and a half until right. there's some walk-off. It was actually on Twitter the other day. There was some walk-off against Miami, uh, him he, coming out of the bullpen, you know, that he finally breaks the streak. He was going to get the loss in that game actually. Yep. And the Mets uh, tied it and then won it in the bottom of the ninth. When you look at Anthony Young's number, which you just look at his win-loss with the Mets, which I believe is 5-35, and 35, right. uh, it betrays a guy who pitched really well with yeah. the Mets. His numbers are really, really good, uh, especially if you look at his no decisions, and obviously his wins, but his no decisions. Anthony Young was a really good pitcher who encountered a tremendous amount of bad luck. And you wouldn't know that necessarily by looking at the bottom line, 92 and 93 stats. But if you go through the individual game logs and you see how well he performed and how, uh, as I said, ridiculously unlucky he was in terms of run support, in terms of one hit that caused him a loss in a game where he strikes out six or seven guys. Um, it's, it, I, I think people come to realize uh, that he gets a, a bum rap, um, but Going through all of that, admittedly, I wasn't really certain how badly or well he may have pitched at that time. And the ability to do something like a baseball reference um, allows me to see that, allows anyone to see that. Two guys that I think are underrated that don't necessarily get loved. They were big contract guys. 
but their numbers offensive, they're really good. Danny Tartable had a good career as a Yankee. I know it ended badly uh, when they traded him. Was it 95? They traded 95. him for, yeah, for Ruben Sierra. Big deal. Ruben Sierra helped the, the, it was interesting. Ruben Sierra helps the Yankees 95. Cecil Fielder helps the Yankees in 96. It's ironic how that connection. And Bobby Bonilla was a good offensive player on a bad team. And I always remember rock bottom as a Mets fan. It was, I was at a ball game in 93. I was lucky enough back then. My dad used to get us occasionally a, a business associate would get him, uh, get us tickets behind the visiting dugout. And I don't remember it was the Cubs or who they were playing, but Bonilla had struck out a couple of times that night. And this guy was just screaming at him behind the Mets dugout and in a nasty way. And it was a nasty, negative environment. Understandably. So the whole season was nasty and negative in 93. And uh, you just look at that and you're like, this, this, this stinks. Now, again, you had your winter sports to get you through. So you had your thing, but it just stinks. And you look at the Yankees with Tartable, not beloved, but those free agent signings from an analytics perspective, good on base for, for Tartable power. Uh, maybe he wasn't a great fielder, but he was a, a run creator. Yeah. Overlooked really. Tartable's overlooked. So was Bonilla a little bit. Bonilla had some of his best years as a major leaguer with the Mets. I believe he set his career high in home runs with the 93 team. I think it was yep. 30 home runs in 87. And I was at the game when Rob Dibble ripped off the shirt. I think that was 92 when he had a game winning home run. I still remember Dibble coming back to the dugout. I was sitting by the dugout ripping off his shirt and everything like that. Bonilla put up great numbers. He, but there's a couple of reasons why his legacy is what it is. Putting aside Bobby Bonilla day, because that's not this era of the Mets. Yep. That's, Late night, and I'll get into that in the next book. But first of all, he got off to a terrible start, specifically at at home at Shea Stadium, Mm -hmm. and that and so he starts to hear the boos, and it gets recommended to him by the hitting coach that he might want to consider earplugs. Now, this what the story as they tell it is it was really not to drown out boos; it was to drown out all the noise at Shea Stadium, all the crowd noise, the planes, all of it. Um, But whether that's true or not, nobody believed that it was true. They all believed it was to drown out the booze. And then you have stories of him calling the press box to complain about an error that he was given and the in- encounters he had with reporters, with Bob Clappish and the 94 R. McFarland. And so all of that, plus how terrible the team was, makes Bonilla really the face of that era, fairly or unfairly. Sure. Just sure. And so he gets saddled with that. And then Danny Tartable. Tartle had 31 home runs in 1993. Uh, he drew a ton of walks, yeah, drove in over 100 RBIs, had a great season in 93, had a great one in 94. But in 95, he just sort of completely falls uh, falls off. It's only six home runs. And the Yankees were really bad for the first few months of 1995. Uh, they were a last-place team. They were under 500. And Tartable was sort of the poster boy for that because he was performing so poorly and there were the questions about whether he was really injured when he was saying he was, and it was just time for him to go. And he had a great year in 96 with the White Sox. So there was still gas in the tank, but his time in New York was just over. And it's uh, that's really how he's remembered is for that last part of it. But as you mentioned, look, the, the Mets signed Benia and the Yankees haven't signed anybody that offseason. And I think Gene Michael felt that George, even though he wasn't allowed to have any say in the operations of the team, it was sort of like, what would George do? And so Tartable's the guy who's left, the big slugger who's left. So they sign Tartable, somebody they had expressed no interest in until Bonilla signed with the Mets. And it, it sets off this chain reaction of a couple things. Kevin Moss is now no longer the Yankees' DH. 
right? The guy who came up with a big splash in 1990. His career, he lasts two more years with the Yankees, but his career with the Yankees is pretty much done. And, and Moss told me that. He's like, I, I had no idea when the Yankees signed Tartable. That would basically be the end of my career as a Yankee. But then you have Tartable trading for Sierra, trading for Fielder. The Yankees do not make the playoffs in 95 without Ruben Sierra. He had a phenomenal two. And he had a good series against the Mariners, yeah. Good series against the Mariners. And then he falls off in 96 and has some incidents with Joe Torre. The Yankees trade him to Cecil Fielder. I don't think people remember how good Cecil Fielder was in 1996, both in August and September. They do not win the World you, you can say this unequivocally. They do not win the World Series without him. And if not John Wetland, he easily could have been named the MVP um, of the World Series. And then, of course, he falls off in 97, so people don't necessarily remember right. him. Uh, the best of ways either but Yankees always had guys veterans whether it be Glenn Allen Hill even Jose Canseco Jose Vizcaino would come in I call it the Yankee bump with the pinstripes not so much happening anymore but for a while there it's like Alfonso Soriano returned a few years ago and all of a sudden he's Alfonso Soriano again if Bonilla in my experience at Shea Stadium watching the screaming at Bonilla for the strikeout was the low point in that era for the Mets for you as a Yankees fan is it Andy Hawkins losing a no-hitter. Is it the failure of Sam Militello? Is it, you know, um, Mel Hall? You know, is it Ke- – you, you spoke to Kevin Moss. Is it Steve Sachs? Like, is there an epitome of that bad time before Buck Showalter comes in, cleans it up, and, you know, the 93 happens? Is there a player or, or something that's the epitome of that for you? So I would I would call it a tie between an on-the-field and off-the-field event. So the on-the-field is Hawkins pitching a no-hitter and losing – um, which is my first memory as a Yankee fan. I went to my first game in 88 and I, I remember some pieces of it, but the first game I really truly remember watching on TV was that July 1st, 1990 losing no hitter. Um, and, and really it, the fact that they were shut out, the fact that they were almost no hit, the fact that they made three errors, I think it all sums up nicely just what that 90, 1990 team was all about. And then the off the field incident is, August 15th, 1991, when Don Mattingly is benched for having his hair too sure. long. It's, it's so ridiculous. I know. Uh, and look, look, the Yankees have their rules. Agree with them or not, those are the rules. He was told to cut his hair. He didn't. He got benched. But he was the team captain at that time. He was really the only reason that a lot of people were coming to the ballpark, and I can prove that in a minute. Um, and so for them to bench him over that, it just seemed so petty and unnecessary. Um, and I, it explains a lot about the clubhouse atmosphere and the feeling. And ultimately, it was really what led to Stump Merrill's uh, downfall. I think people were sort of tiring of Stump, even though the Yankees were actually surprisingly good in the first half in 91. But they felt he was sort of unprepared. He was a great minor league manager, unprepared to be a major league manager. The Mattingly incident happens, and that was really the final nail in the coffin for him. And my anecdote for that is that, as I said, I was a huge Don Mattingly fan. I had asked my mother if we could go to a Yankees game that year. I said, I, I just want to go see Don Mattingly. Play. And it was the day he gets benched. Said, that game. We get to the stadium. He is not in the lineup. We don't know why. This is 1991, so there's no way to find out sure. why. We were driving home from the game. I fell asleep in the car. We wait, I get home, wake up, and my brother tells me that he's he was benched for not cutting his hair. I thought he was busting my chops. I thought he was making a joke about yeah. me. 
know, and I didn't believe it because it wasn't believable. It was so ridiculous. Um, but I think I think that sums up the early '90s. Those two on and off the field events uh, sum them up perfectly. Did you have any interesting conversations with former members of either team, or anything that stands out to you while you did the research for this book? I think a couple things stand out to me. Uh, one is so not a lot of Mets want to talk about this era, as you might understand. Sure, Understood. but the ones I was able to talk to. Uh, they a few of them made comments about how, geez, nobody ever wants to talk about this stuff. They always want to talk about 86 or something else, but they don't really ask about my time in New York if I was there from 90 to 93 or whatever. Um, I, was spe- I remember speaking with Jeff Innes uh, shortly before he passed away. I, I didn't know he was sick at the time we, we were talking, uh, and he died a few months later. And he actually said, man, this, I don't get to talk about this a lot. And I wish I wish I did. I wish I spoke about it more often. I really liked being a Met. Um, so I, I think there was, despite how chaotic it was, I think the guys who were with the Mets, who were able to have some good years, right, who were there in the late 80s um, or, or 1990, I think they wished people asked them about that era more often. Another thing that surprised me was the Yankees were chaotic and a lot of people were unhappy and it was no secret at the time how unhappy people were. Guys talked about it in the press, but when you talk to those guys now, they they'll admit to you, yeah, we were not a good team, but they, they just, they do nothing but smile about being a Yankee. Yeah. The the history, the the stadium. No matter how bad it was. You wonder if that, you know, it's with the new stadium and with how it's been changed. You wonder if that's the same way now. Because I don't, I, you're a Yankees fan. I mean, forget the new state. It's not really a new stadium anymore. It's been around, what, 14, 15 years right. now. But um, it may not hold that same. The pinstripes, I don't know. Maybe it's been uh, over oversaturated of pinstripe uh, mania, right? I'm sure there's still something to the to the aura and the feeling. And, I mean, you you I think for people who are coming up now who grew up in an age where they watched Jeter and Rivera, and Posada and Bernie Williams, there's something to them saying they played here and now I'm playing here. Well, not Bernie, but the other guys. But it's not, it is not the same place. And look, this is going to sound like an old man yells at cloud kind of thing, right? but <laughs> it, it is, a, it's, it's a different, it's a, look, I, games are fine there at that stadium, but it's, it's not, there's just a different feeling than there was from the old Absolutely. stadium. It's as, a, nice- as a team going in there, as a Mets fan, watching the subway series beating the Yankees in Yankee stadium was special. Right. Now that's subway series saturation. That's a whole nother thing. The other night, you know, Mets win nine, three, it's fun. It's not the same, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's look, it's a nicer experience at this Yankee stadium simply because of the way it's set up and it's not a 75 year old stadium and it's you know, the seats aren't this big. And, um, there is something about the old place and the noise and the way it was set up and the feeling that, yes, even though it is not the exact same setup as the 1920s and 1930s, it is still the same spot and place where all this previous history happened. Ruth, Gehrig, DiMaggio, Barramantle. It all happened here. That's somewhat gone in the, in the new place. And the way that they have it set up I know they're not doing it delivery, but it almost feels like they're 
hiding the monuments and the numbers. Trying to move forward. Yeah. yeah, No place. It was all out in the open and you could see it and it was great. So I think it is a different feeling. And yeah, part of that might be the stadium because you talk to guys from that era. I I remember talking to Wade Taylor, who was a pitcher for the 91 Yankees, and he talks about making his debut and sort of being like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm sitting on standing on the mound and I can see the train going by in right field. So I'm sure that's part of it in some way. To wrap up here, you know, a hundred percent. I agree. 94, 95, the Yankees run Yankees post strike big part of getting baseball back in New York, getting that energy. And then, like I said, the, in, you know, the subway series, the 97, the first subway series, baseball has been front and center in this town. Now. Oh, you're looking at 25, 26 years, generation of fans in our age group, maybe a little bit younger, but now you have the Mets in this weird time with Steve Cohen and what has been going on with the trade deadline. I know Yankees fans are not happy with Hal Steinbrenner. They, and there's this weird malaise, I would call, with the Yankees. I don't know. Could we be headed for that? I don't see us heading for what we saw 1990 to 1995 because both owners have a lot of money and could at least spend money to keep the interest going. But look. The Rangers are a team on the rise, whether you like Dolan or not. The Knicks are a team improving. The Jets have Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, maybe the Giants have something with Daniel Jones and Saquon, Shaquan Barkley. Um, who knows? Could we be heading for that? I'm curious your thoughts. I don't think so, but I think there could be some baseball malaise going on here. Or or maybe we're time for baseball hiber- hibernation. I think well, a couple of things on that, Mike, which is I think what you're seeing with the Mets now is very similar to what you saw with them in the early nineties in terms of they're making all these big moves and through some fault of their own and through some just sheer bad luck, it's not working out. Uh, I think one difference here is that Cohen, it seems to be fully acknowledging, Hey, we gave it a shot. And the way that's going right now is not working. We're going to re regroup and try something else. That, that seems to be what uh, they're looking at right now. And that wasn't necessarily the way they were thinking in 91 or 92. I think they were sort of thinking they would just bear down and and try and figure it out. And it didn't happen. And it took a long time. Cohen doesn't seem to be going that route. So I don't think the Mets will completely bottom out unless some really unfortunate circumstances happen. The Yankees, look, they might still make the the postseason this year. I, I don't think they're a good enough team to win the World Series, but once you get in the playoffs, it's a crapshoot anyway, as everyone likes to say. But I think this is more similar to the late 60s era where the team suddenly got really old and no one was ready for that overnight. Um, that their stars, I'm not comparing guys now to Mantle and Ford and Barra, but that, look, they're, they have guys on this team who just aren't performing anymore. And I don't think they were prepared for that. So I don't think it's like the eighties and nineties where it was George's mania and trading everybody and get rid of all the prospects that resulted in it. And because it's not that, I don't think they will ultimately fall to the depths of despair that they were in 90 and 91. But that said, we, we are sort of, we might be on the cusp of a year or two where baseball is just, everybody's going to have hope in April and May. And then they they'll deal with it in the summer because there's nothing else to watch. And then hey, NFL training camp. It's time for for football. It's time right. for the NBA training camps. Interesting. Right. You know, another one last thing. But I know you got to run. 
when you look back at baseball reference and you look at some of the, those, those numbers of the offensive numbers, the pitching numbers, analytically, there are so many pitchers, Jeff Venice, God rest his soul. One of them, great season, walk like two batters per nine, struck out two batters per nine. Like by today's standards, like, Oh my God, how is he on a big league roster? Even the guys like a Brett Saberhagen, a Jimmy key, not big strikeout numbers. God people out. It's amazing how the game has changed. And I'm not going to get into better game. The game is what it is. It's baseball. And even with the pitch clock, it's funny. I haven't seen a change necessarily in how we assess players. Strikeouts are still the strikeouts are high. Walk rates are still crazy. Walk rates. We still look for on-base percentage and power. But it's interesting how different. And I'm wondering, I'm sure you saw that too as you went through your research. Yeah, so I'll just a a quick anecdote, which is actually separate from the book. But recently it was the, I believe, 35th anniversary of Tommy John committing three errors on one play. Sure. I saw the video a lot. And <laughs> find video of Tommy John pitching in the eighties and him throwing 70 miles an hour and wondering how in the hell this guy not only was still a pitcher, but is still getting people out. And is that is simply not possible in today's game. He wouldn't even be given the opportunity to do that. And, and so, yeah, you look at guys who are pitching to, and I know we don't necessarily measure, players by these stats anymore but you look at guys who are pitching to five eras and they are the mainstays of the yankees rotation and george is giving them two-year multi-million dollar sure melito perez andy hawkins you know when you go into errors that are not successful there's some there's some cool peak names and players that you appreciate and wish they were there for the good times but there's a lot of names you go wow oof that's yeah, a tough one. yeah, it's just it, look. It was a it's a different game now than it was back then. But if you go back and look at the numbers, you would definitely go, "Wow, <laughs> this is these kind of things." Oscar Azokar walked two times in 1990. He had over he had 250 at bats and he walked twice. And there was actually a point in the season where his on base percentage was lower than his batting average, which is a near impossibility to accomplish. But he actually did it. And there is no way a player like that would be in Major League Baseball in this type of game. It, it w- he would you, not make it. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. You want to have some fun if you're a Yankees fan or New York baseball fan. This is a New York baseball segment. You look at that 1990 Yankee roster on baseball reference. You see some names you're like, wow, he played for the Yankees. It's amazing. <laughs> for every Kevin Moss, there's an Oscar Zokar, yep. Sam Militello, Wade Taylor. You mentioned Wade Taylor, um, guys like that. Hey, Chris, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I can't wait for the next one, the golden era of of, uh, of New York baseball for me, 1997 to 2001. So be well and uh, let's do it again, my friend. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. All Thanks right. for having me. And that's Chris Donnelly. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. I thought Chris Donnelly and I had a great conversation going down memory lane. And, you know, he's right. We really don't talk a lot about that period post-1986, 87, 88. 
maybe, maybe touch a little bit into the worst team money could buy. Everybody remembers Bob's book, Bob Klappish of uh, you know, the great columnist of the record. He's been on this show a number of times. But other than that book, you really don't talk a lot about Generation K. You know, we had Bill Postover on just recently or, you know, Alex Ochoa or some of the guys that came up during that period because the Mets were in a rebuild during that time. And the Yankees tried to rebuild through free agency, missed out on the two biggest fish of all back then, Maddox and Bonds, who could have really remade the Yankees in a big way. And the secondary guys, you know, Wade Boggs, who they weren't sure what was left of him, Jimmy Key, Danny Tartable, who was the Bobby Bonilla consolation prize, turned out to to be a bridge in some ways. You know, Jimmy Key was there, as well as Boggs for the championship team in 96, but they were guys that came here, embraced New York, embraced the challenge. I mean, look, the Yankees had a yoke around their neck back then, too. The failures, the money spending, George, haven't had one since 77. The stadium stinks. The area is unsafe. I mean, they had as many challenges. You know, the pinstripes and what they are today and what George built by leveraging those pinstripes and that championship in 1996 to become a cash cow behemoth. Give them a ton of credit. The Yankees were not. You know, I think they were one of the first teams, like Jerry Jones did with the Dallas Cowboys, where they negotiated their own Adidas deal, I think, to bring in more revenue. I mean, the Yankees were, from a revenue perspective, blowing away and breaking all the rules. They took that brand, they took that championship, and they leveraged it. And they became great. And they won four titles in five years. You know, And it took a special team like the Mets to even sniff beating them. It took Piazza, a special player, a guy that nobody would have thought We've had him on this show, Mike, um, that would come here, a, a guy that was having a great career out in California. Yeah, he was an East Coast guy, and that probably played into him understanding the market, even though he was all California back then, all L.A. back then. A special guy coming here, embracing what this was all about, about the being the number two team in town. And he and Al Leiter and Robin Ventura and Alfonso and, and some of the veterans that were around them, the Olderudes, the Zeals, Guys like that, you know, almost climbed the mountaintop and beat and almost knocked off a dynasty a year before the Arizona Diamondbacks actually knocked off the dynasty and beat the best closer in the history of baseball. And that, to me, 1997, it starts It's a golden age of New York baseball. It really, to me, it is. For the rest of my life, that's when I fell back in love with baseball. Because I will tell you, I was, and I am not joking about this. I was out of the baseball game throughout most of my high school years after the worst team money could buy. Completely out of it. It was all about the Knicks. was all about the Knicks winning a championship. And nothing else mattered for me personally. There were a lot of guys that were into the Rangers. The Rangers became a big deal. You know, where I grew up in Bensoners, Brooklyn, a lot of Rangers fans, a lot of hockey fans, even Islanders fans too that were still had grown up during the dynasty years or their parents had grown up during the dynasty years. But that was more Long Island. I was in... I was in Brooklyn, and of course, football is football. Football was 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 emerging as this behemoth. Like that was like you know we were growing up during a time in the early '90s where because of media, not social media, media, these sports like football were growing, and the NBA was coming into its own, and the Dream Team, and the Knicks, and the Bulls, and the Rangers, and the Devils, and and all the things that were in front of us, and and baseball in this town at least was behind. They were behind in marketing. They were behind because they had two teams that were in the doldrums. And then 1995 comes along, and the Yankees make this wild card run under Buck. 
and they nearly beat the Mariners, and that stadium was rocking. And I remember when Don Mattingly hit that home run, I remember listening to it on the radio. I remember watching those games, those Yankee Stadium games against the Mariners and those games in Seattle. And I said, this is what it's about. Like, it brought me back. It was an energy I had not heard in a long time. You know, as a young Mets fan, 86, 87, 88, I was, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. You don't understand the game like you do when you're 18 years old. And if it was for the first time I said, this is what it's about. And I will tell you, as a hardened Mets fan who now tries to do this show and tries to do it in a way uh, where I'm, I don't want to be a fanboy. I want to be as, as down the middle, you know, my passion for the Mets shows, I think that's important, but I want to be down the middle. I fell back in love with baseball, not because of Generation K, not because of Bobby Valentine, or Mike, you know, Mike Piazza took us to another level as Mets fans. It was because of the 1995 Yankees. And then 96 comes along, and the Mets have some hope. And obviously, they were a little bit away. They were a year away. But then 97 came along, and specifically that series against the Yankees. I remember being so fired up, so intense. And I said, this is what postseason baseball is all about. I want to be part of that. And I think the Mets did too. And during those years... 97 to 2001, specifically in my opinion, it was a great tune-up for bigger and better things. The Mets always had to have that tune-up. The Yankees always had to have that tune-up. Usually it was about June they would do it. You know, Back then they would do it within a, a month, You know, over a couple of weeks. You would do the three at Yankee Stadium, the three at Shea at that time. And I felt it made them better. You know, It was intense. There was always things going on, drama. Joe Torre hated it. I think the Mets embraced it a little bit better than the Yankees. But that's how I got back into baseball. And I think right now, we need something to get us back. We thought it was last year's Mets team. We thought it was Cohen's wallet. Maybe there was some juice we thought last year with the Subway Series. But it, it still didn't feel right. And now the hope is with some of these young players, with this new philosophy with the Mets, and, and who knows what the Yankees do. You know, we, it's almost like you want it again. Like, how do you re, how do you recapture 97? And is this the era, a repeat era? You know, history always repeats itself. Are we living through another, you know, 1992, 93? We'll see. I don't think it'll be as bad, but we'll see. The next six weeks will feel awful like 92. We'll feel awfully lot like 93. But I'm not sure that the owner wants to sit back as he tries to build an environment around that ballpark trying to, as I know personally, that he wants to bring in bigger uh, sponsors and bigger money components to this ballpark so that he can have the kind of revenues and the kind of environment that the Yankees have or have established. So it'll be interesting. So I thought this was a fun segment. Look, one of the things we're going to do the rest of the year is try to look at some books, try to look at some history, try to, you know, we'll talk about the prospects. I will, you know, one of the things I'd like to do in the next couple of weeks is start looking at some players and assessing, you know, who's a solution, who's not going forward. You know, there's some guys on this team that you have to start to question, like a Jeff McNeil, like a Brett Beatty. You know, is Marte done? You know, what is Nimmo's future here? Pete Alonzo. I mean, everybody's got a big question mark over their head. Nothing is off the table right now. I think after this past week, after what you saw with the kind of money that Cohen ate with Scherzer and Verlander, nothing is off the table. And that's exciting, but that's scary and unsettling because you're emotionally attached to certain players. And the unknown is a scary thing. So 
It'll be interesting to see where we go. All right. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I want to thank Chris Donnelly for stopping by. Check out his book, Road to Nowhere. Great read. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And just try to Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you can get me on Instagram, no G. And, of course, we always want to thank our good friends over at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Peace.